I'm sitting here in Narita Airport waiting for my flight back to the United States. Directly outside my window here is the Eva Air Hello Kitty plane. Well, one of them. I guess they have quite a few. It's pretty cute. It's definitely an airplane that you would want to ride on. I've got with me giant bags full of video games from uh, most of which are from Tokyo well let's not say most maybe 60% and the other 40% are from Korea so I thought I would share with you a story of a day of retro game shopping in Korea in four parts I tell you what, little buddy. Sometimes you don't have to look for a metaphor, you know what I mean? I'm here at a bus stop, Birmingham, England. Birmingham, UK. I'm looking right at the word Birmingham Airport. I, uh, looking up at this moon, this, this super blood moon, as Twitter is calling it, pretty sure that's what it's supposed to, that's the name that some astronomers given to it, they try to make everything sound like a cartoon these days, there's a bunch of people across the street smoking cigarettes and looking up at the moon and taking pictures of it. Lady came over here with a cigarette between her lips and just a couple minutes ago took a picture of the moon and the on her phone and then ran back over to the smoking zone. It is uh, 4.20 a.m. Monday. Monday, September 28th, 2015. I uh, was waiting for a bus here. Birmingham Airport. I waited for three hours to get on a bus that uh, is going to take two hours to go from Birmingham Airport to Heathrow Airport because my publisher flew me into Birmingham or into Heathrow instead of into Birmingham and then I have to take the plane from Heathrow to Dublin at 8.50 and wait there for three hours and then take a plane from Dublin to uh, San Fran- wait in Dublin for three hours and take a plane to San Francisco it takes 12 hours and then take a train from San Francisco to Oakland that takes an hour well the airport anyway uh, it's kind of a long ride kind of signed myself up for something like a long ride you know I uh, was just looking at this moon and uh, thinking about something that happened about an hour ago, which is I came out here to this bus stop. This bus comes at 3.20. As you notice, they said it is 4.20. Uh, yeah, uh, 4.20. It, it literally is 4.28. I'm in no mood for a joke about that. Uh, I was supposed to get on the bus. Uh, 4.21 was actually the number of the bus that was coming at 3.20. I waited out here until 3.35, 
and the 422 and the 777, not my lucky day, came by. And uh, uh, a bunch of passengers got in, got off, uh, shuffled into the airport, out of the airport. Uh, the driver told me to wait for the 421, and he turned to his uh, fellow driver and said, that one left right just after us, didn't it? And the guy said, yeah. And uh, no, not five minutes later, after everyone had disappeared and this place was just a desolate wasteland again, uh, the 421 bus screeched to a stop right here at this stop. And uh, I looked at the driver and I was going to wave at him. It's kind of an awkward little wave. Here's the 777 for Stansted Airport. Not going to Stansted Airport. I don't really want to ever go a place like that. I was going to wave at the driver. And I didn't. He looked right at me. And then the bus just stepped on the gas and just rocketed out of there. And uh, I, I, I stood there for a minute. I ran after the bus with my two huge suitcases. And I stood in the middle of the road and I waved at it. And it just, it was going... I mean, it was it was topping out speed. I mean, it was running 15 minutes late, I guess. And wanted to make up for lost time by by not dealing with my nonsense, even for one minute. Uh, very tired. I'm devoted to not sleeping until I get on that plane to San Francisco. So it was kind of like a like a bad dream. So I dialed this number that's right here: 0871781818. That's 08781. Oh, And, uh, uh, I asked, uh, was that bus supposed to stop? And the lady said, hang on a minute. And then apparently it was supposed to stop. And it just didn't. And, uh, contacting the bus driver, he, uh, says he saw me. I just didn't look serious enough. So I went back into the airport. Where I'd been earlier and I looked at Instagram and uh, just sitting there and they told me I can get on a bus at 4.35 which is going to get me to the airport at 7.10 which gives me one hour and 40 minutes to check in, pass security and get on my plane uh, I bought a box of McVitie's digestive biscuits, milk chocolate a Pepsi Max and a Cadbury fruit and nut dairy milk bar uh was looking at Instagram in the airport after that and one girl that I used to go out with got married today and the other girl another girl that I used to go out with had a baby today and uh, I flip open my 3DS and I'm playing Dragon Quest 7 which is a game that is about the very first kind of narrative you have is someone tells you that you're living on the only island in the world someone in a castle library says I found this map it shows our island on it surely enough uh, but it has a whole bunch of other islands someone must have used their imagination and drawn all these islands the people don't know that the other islands used to exist but because of some demon overlord I know because I played this game before in 2001 uh, some demon overlord erased all of those islands uh, they don't know that Maybe they're better off not knowing that. Uh, right there at the beginning of that game, you kind of... This is just the thing that I, I think about. Is, uh, you know, that's that's good storytelling. I just... I want to know what happens at the very end of that story. I want to know where 
this writer is going with that, you know? The only island in the world right now is, uh, this one. It's a little island. Two airports, two hours away, two hours apart by a bus. I wanted to know the end of that story, Dragon Quest Seven, the first time I played it, and uh, today. I wanted to know the end of that story again, even though I already knew it. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I already know it, and I already knew it. And uh, I tell you what, little buddy, that's about it. That's about a... It's, it's cold out here, man. And uh, it's... Uh, I'm alone for the time being. There's some people across the street. They're smoking and they're looking at me. Looks like I'm on the phone. I'm holding the iPhone up to my head, so... Yeah. Uh, this is weird. So Dragon Quest Seven. I just... Dragon Quest Five is the same way. It uh, starts out, you're on a boat. You're a kid traveling with his dad. You get off the boat, and uh, someone is waiting for you at the dock. And uh, someone who knows your dad, he's says, you haven't been here in a long time, it's been a long time, then he says to you, uh, I haven't seen you since you were a baby, and then he says that your dad is a great man, and uh, he saved my life, and one day, uh, you know, he'll find what he's looking for, and you're just like, whoa, I really want to see the end of that story, too, just talk about big hooks, you know, and, uh, I'm thinking about that only island in the world. And, uh, I see a bus. Oh no. Someone, someone is drawing near, so, uh, I should avoid, you know, looking too weird. You know what I mean? And my hand's getting cold in addition. I'm gonna let you go for a minute. Yeah. I have a friend in Korea named Jun. He used to work in video games at, I think, Nexon and some other places, but he's not working right now. He's taking some leave, so he had time to go with me to look for old video games around Seoul. Seoul is the only place in Korea, as far as I know, and as far as he knows, and as far as the retro game community knows, that has old console games. By and large, Korea has been a PC-oriented and now mobile-oriented country when it comes to video games. They had packaged games in the 90s and a bit into the 2000s, but then they quickly transitioned to online games, of course, like Lineage and Ragnarok Online, and then as PC bongs fell out of favor and mobile phones started to be a thing phones were the place where you could find Korean video games. But also in the 90s, they had some consoles. Um, Samsung released a version of the Saturn. There was the Comboy and Super Comboy released by... Uh, was it Hyundai? I forget. Probably I should research this before I start talking. I'll just say that the names of the consoles were the... Uh, the MXX, MSX was the Gamboy... 
Or was that the Master System? I think it may have been the Master System that was the Game Boy. But then, also, there was the V-Star. That's the Korean TurboGrafx slash PC Engine. So, June and I were going around looking for some old stuff. I knew I would mostly get Japanese games, but I was hoping for some Korean stuff as well. Our first stop was uh, a place called Nambu Bus Terminal. That's the name of the station exit anyway. Because they had a retro cafe there, and that's what we were going to go check out. While we were on the way, man, come on, come on. Trying to tell a story here. While we were on the way to Nambu Bus Terminal, I was exchanging some coins in my pocket because I was I knew I was about to go to Japan so I was taking all the um, 100 won coins out of my pocket and putting 100 yen coins into my pocket uh, as well and I noticed I don't know how I never noticed this before but 100 won coin and 100 yen coin are incredibly similar in size and width and color and texture and 100 yen is worth 10 times what 100 won is. And Jun was telling me that back in the old days, I'm not sure how long ago, but I guess when he was younger, people would uh, spoof Japanese vending machines by putting 100 won coins in there. They could just... I don't remember if it was that they would shave something down a little bit, or they'd put a little bit more something on there. He talked about wrapping them up with tape. So I guess maybe they added something to it. And they would use 100 won coins instead of 100 yen. And it actually became something of an international incident because it was happening so much that the Japanese and Korean government had to talk about it and Korea had to change the size of its coins just slightly. That's pretty crazy. I did accidentally try to spend 100 won several times in Japan because I did not manage to get one of them out of my pocket. But everybody at the convenience stores in Japan dutifully noticed that I was using the wrong money and uh, enlightened me. So the Retro Cafe at Nambu Bus Terminal which I believe is just called Retro Cafe. It was pretty nice. They've got a huge selection of games, most of which you cannot play, unfortunately. They're all behind glass, but they were showing, you know, games like Battle Gorega and Crows for the Saturn, which are multiple hundreds of dollars. But unfortunately, they're all behind glass, and you'll, you'll never see them. But at least they're preserved somewhere, which is nice. In the center of the cafe, there are more glass cases, but these are games with prices on them. They're sold by customers who can put whatever price they want on there, and I guess the 
cafe takes a little commission off of it. But they don't make any guarantees for it, and it's all, um, they're kind of just a, a middle person. They're a store. So I actually bought a couple things from there. They had an interesting selection, and it was kind of fun to look in, in each, you know, little glass cube. There were, like, glass transparent cubbies. You could see several games from one person, and you could sort of see the trend of what they liked and what they were willing to get rid of through just looking at this little cubby because, like, one thing would be way overpriced. And I, th- I think to myself, I guess they really value this game. And another thing will be, you know, about 10 bucks cheaper than it should be. And based on the games that they had in there, uh, particularly I bought this one PC Engine game, uh, The Last Sun Hard. And it's a really cool game. And the kinds of other games that the person had in there, I could tell this must have been a double because this person would like this kind of game and they just want someone cool to have it and so they made it a little bit cheap all their other games were way too expensive so that was interesting I bought that there and decided to play some games because you can play what did they have? they had Genesis they had which was called the Aladdin in Korea by the way they had Super Comboy, and they had a Turbo Duo. This was a Japanese Turbo Duo, but they had RAM cartridges, or rather, ROM carts, in all of these systems. So you could play a bunch of ROMs and just kind of, for free, have a nice exploration of video games of the past. By and large, it was couples there playing together, which was really nice to see. But I decided to play some PC Engine Turbo Duo by myself. And after doing so, while June was playing some um, Super Comboy, and a guy next to me was furiously smashing the stick on a Neo Geo, um, we left the place, and... I asked Jun if he knew much about the PC Engine. He's like, yeah, I've heard of it. It's pretty cool, but I don't I don't collect that stuff. I was like, ah, that's too bad, because you know there is a Korean version. And he had no idea. The Korean version is called the V-Star. It was released by a company whose name I don't remember pretty much after the TurboGrafx had failed in the U.S. And it has a unique shape... They used Airzonk as their mascot instead of Bonk, but Airzonk was, like, on everything. He's, he was kind of their little seal of approval mascot. But in eight or nine years of coming to Korea, I had never managed to see anything but the box of the console of a V-Star. I'd never seen a game, and that had always been one of my big goals when coming to Korea and shopping for games there. So... He he was he was kind of floored. He's like, is this something I can look up? I had no idea that this even existed. Is it real? And I was like, yeah, it's real. So we decided to go look for that yet again in Yongsan. Yongsan is the big 
retro game market in Seoul. It is the largest place where you can find Korean console games and Japanese console games in all of South Korea. There's nothing in Busan. It's all in Seoul, and it's all in Yongsan, basically, as far as I know, and as far as the community knows. So that was our next stop. Now, I put a thief in my mouth to steal my brain, little buddy. And, uh, yeah, and I just kind of sat there like an idiot. Uh, it's, uh, 10.51 p.m. Car is parked kind of on a little bit of an incline. Door is going to slam itself. God, wow, that would have cut my foot off. Um... Uh, it's dark in here. Can't find the keyhole. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I, uh, got back from England. I don't even know where I am. God dang it. I'm talking on the phone left-handed and trying to do my seatbelt right-handed. I don't really have that much coordination with that. God dang you. This is not a good idea. Uh, and then again, what is... Yeah, so I... was on an airplane, inside airplanes and airports and buses for just around 28 hours. And, uh... I don't know what's anything anymore. Right, I'm going to Target. I don't even know what I want. I'm just... It's 11 o'clock. I'm going to Target. Uh... Uh, yeah, so, I was waiting for a bus, right, and, uh, got on the bus, the bus came at 4.50ish, and, uh, uh, I, you know, they let two other people on the bus, and then the driver, I said, hey, uh, I was waiting for a bus, and the bus kind of, uh, just drove right by, and he looks at me, and he goes, oh, it's you, get on, then, and he just told me to get on the bus, so I got on the bus. And, uh, I sat there in a stupor, because I'm not going to sleep on a bus, two and a half hours or so. And, uh, the bus then stopped dead in the middle of the highway, just what must have been, I didn't know where it was, it's just, there's just cars speeding down either side, on either side of the bus, the bus is stopped in the middle of the highway. And I look, you know, I mean, I'm just like barely awake, like I, I haven't slept this whole time, and, uh, the guy's just barreling down. The bus driver's just waddling his arms up like he's holding two imaginary suitcases. And he's just running down the middle of the bus. And I got my legs crossed, and he looks at my foot, and he says, Move your foot, lad. Like that. Just, just, move your foot, lad. And uh, I moved my foot. <laughs> this, this guy who, two hours ago, had been, uh, had been, Oh, it's you! like that uh so i moved my foot he just jumps into the bathroom and there's just this machine gun diarrhea sound just this insane diarrhea sound uh there's an ambulance outside of a building and a couple of cop cars yeah something violent in the air uh so i get to the airport and uh god it was it was a nightmare 
I had to fly to Ireland, and then in Ireland I had to go. I had to wait three hours, go to Ireland. In Ireland, I had to go through U.S. pre-clearance, and uh, there's a lady in the line, and she's saying, uh, uh, you know, whatever we did, I hope we had fun doing it. You know, she's American. She's like, you know, what did we do to the, in this? What did we do to deserve this sort of way? It's like you're either going to stand in line here or you're going to stand in line there it's like pre-clearance seemed like a good idea I get to get rid of the immigration thing but I get out of the airport and I'm just walking through this mall and I'm just being corralled into a line they're like you have to get through here you must proceed to pre-clearance you can't hang out in Dublin airport so I just got pre-cleared and I got thrown in to the airplane and I'm in the middle seat in a Boeing 787 and it's a row of five people. So in order to go to the bathroom, I need two people, two adjacent people to be awake and or not eating. And there's a lady, you know, not with their tray table down. There's there's a lady sitting right next to me and she refused to hear me uh, when I said, excuse me, uh, excuse me. Uh, I'm sorry, excuse me. She just refused to hear me. So I'm on a plane for 12 hours and 21 minutes or whatever it was and I, I could not go to the bathroom and I had to go to the bathroom so bad for about the last eight hours of the flight so I'm asleep but it's a sort of a fever dream it's a sort of a sort of a, a, a living nightmare just I can't have good dreams I can't get deep sleep while on a plane first of all and second of all I've, I've got to go to the bathroom so at one point the person on the aisle seat got up and uh, to go to the bathroom and I, I asked this lady excuse me and she's not even eating or drinking she's sipping a little cup of wine in her hand her tray tables up i say excuse me can i can i get up and go to the bathroom and she looks at me and she goes what and i go uh, i just want to go to the bathroom and she just sighs this is a woman she's like in her late 50s and she's dressed in expensive clothing uh, brand name stuff and she just looks at me and says what and i go i have to go to the bathroom and she's like all right how long are you going to be, do you think? And I said, I don't know, like one minute, two minutes. And she goes, all right, I'm just going to stand in the aisle then. Just lets me know. Like, made no attempt whatsoever to conceal her, uh, her, her whatever. So I, I get in there, I go to the bathroom and, uh, I come back and I'm just, you know, I got to go to the bathroom again in uh, an hour and, so I started playing Dragon Quest Seven, uh, uh, and I, I played the first three hours of it on the flight, and I felt really bad doing that because I like that game, and I, I didn't want to play it on an airplane. You know what I mean? It just it felt wrong and strange, and uh, met Target. Uh, it just it felt weird to play it on an airplane, and I got all the way to the end of the first three hours where you. Uh, you get off that first island and you unlock the mystery. You got this prince who's kind of an idiot, but he's researching uh, what he thinks is the ruins of an ancient civilization. Uh, he believes there used to be more to the world. And uh, finally you get into this, there's just this fetch quest. You get to the core of this temple and... Uh, there's the temple guardian tells you, uh, uh, tells you, you gotta find this sword, shield, helmet, and armor, 
and he tells you where it is, and you have, you just go, you just have to walk this long distance to the place, and uh, there's the uh, just in this graveyard, these the four things. You just go down into this little pit. You go down inside the grave. You move the gravestone. You go inside. And then there's a button you step on, and then you step on another button, and then it unlocks the thing. It's like you are just done a three-hour RPG quest with no uh, no fighting or anything. It's all just talking. And uh, it's kind of neat. There's just no fighting. It's just walking around and hanging out. It is just such a hangout, and I love it. It's just really good. Uh... So I played that on the airplane, but I just, it felt so bad. It's like, I feel like when I'm on an airplane, you know, I feel like they're telling me what to do. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, uh, you know, they're telling you that we've turned on the seatbelt sign. We've uh, turned off the seatbelt sign. Uh, you know, all of that. And, uh. It's just, uh, you know, I'm stuck at doing what somebody else wants me to do. I don't like that. It just, uh, makes me feel all weird and in the dark. And it's strange to hang out with something you like in a situation like that. I, uh, yeah, I didn't, didn't really care too much for it. And, uh, it's hard to kind of mix those two things together. And then I get back to California and I get on the BART from the airport. And I'm just sitting there in a daze and I was playing the Dragon Quest. Uh, got to the part where you get to the first battle and uh, then uh, I put my 3DS away and not two seconds later... Uh, just looking at a guy, train stops at Montgomery Station, a guy grabs a guy's laptop, a MacBook, and the guy tries to grab his MacBook back. He's like, give it back, bro. And uh, the dude took a gun out of his jacket and slammed the guy in the head with a gun. And people just freaked out. Just complete silence. Everyone just storming out of the train. Just storming out and it's the aisle was crowded this was a rush hour train people clambering over the seats a guy stomped on my head i fell on the ground uh, my face hit the floor of the train my phone flies out of my hand and bounced on the floor and out onto the platform and then i get up and i'm pushing my big suitcases out because i mean it's just too many people it's just like a hundred some people just running out of this train and pushing my suitcases and some guy pushes me over and uh I just fall down on the floor out on the platform and uh, somebody stepped on my back and then somebody stepped on my phone my phone's got a couple of scratches on it and I just get back to my house and uh I'm like wow that was weird so that was a little dark and strange so, uh, it's just hard for me to, which one of those things was more uncomfortable for me, you know, hanging out with something I liked or 
witnessing gun violence, just being forced, just having to go to the bathroom in the middle of a middle of a monster wide aisle, you know, just five seats and playing a video game I really like in a place that's really uncomfortable or just whatever happened on that train. And I mean, that's a surreal thing to have to deal with when you've just been awake for... I mean, I stay up the night before a flight so that I can sleep on the flight, but I didn't sleep on the flight. I was uh, just stuck awake. It was uh, really uncomfortable. I mean, and then you see that gun violence and... Uh, gun violence is what it is. I've seen a gun crime before. A guy pointed a gun at somebody. Just right at a bus stop. Now I've seen gun violence. A guy hits a guy with a gun. And it doesn't really look like anything. You know, just, uh... Just kind of looks like he didn't really, like, Oh, did he hit that guy? It's like, yeah, he did. You know, none of that... Street Fighter 2 standing fierce punch. You know, the punch connects. You know, nothing like that. Nothing like that. So, yeah, that's on my mind. There's no friction in that real-world violence. Uh, I'm going to let you go for now, little buddy. I'm going to talk to you again real soon. So before going to Yongsan, and before even going to Nambu Bus Terminal, I brought with me a bag of records. This is because last time I was in Seoul, I was hoping to sell records in a record shop. Unfortunately, none of the record shops were interested in what I had. It's not like I brought my best stuff. I was bringing things that I bought at thrift stores in the U.S. with the intention of trading them up for Korean stuff. This has kind of worked for me before, but uh, it definitely didn't work in Japan. It worked only okay in Korea the last time I tried. Um, it worked great in the Czech Republic, but I wasn't going to the Czech Republic. So last time, nobody wanted these records, and so I was carrying around them around with me all day. This is back in June, which was the last time I was in Korea. It is now September. So since nobody wanted them, I left them at my friend's house, my friend Peter, and they were just hanging out there until I could come back to Seoul and find a way to get rid of them. So the, my plan was, last time I was in Yongsan, one guy, one of the guys who operates a stall there, he was really interested in my records, and he offered to buy them. But this was before I went to the actual record store area, which is in uh, Namdaemun Market underneath by the uh, Hohyun. I can't pronounce this stuff, man. Um, station. Anyway, uh, he was interested in them, so I thought I'd bring them back and try again. And as luck would have it, he was still there. He remembered me from last time, and he's like, oh, records. He doesn't speak much English, but I was with Jun, and Jun speaks Korean, so we were able to communicate pretty effectively. So he offered me 25,000 won for it, which is about 20 bucks right now. I had 13 records, 
It was a fine deal, and frankly, if he wasn't going to give me money, I was just going to give him to him, because I can't take him home, and I didn't want to leave him in Peter's house for forever. For forever. So, right. I traded in some records, walked around, and, uh, I found a few things. First of all, there's a guy named Joe. He has been operating a place at Yongthan forever. Actually, I'm going to talk about Joe in a little bit. Hold on a second. I had to pause and reset there because uh, I actually want to talk to you first about Yongsan itself. Yongsan is just a district in Seoul that has been largely untouched by all the modernization. There's a huge building being built right outside the station, but that has been forever. They've been building that forever. Like, six years, it feels like. By and large, Yongsan has remained pretty much the same. The video game area is... Um, it's underneath a building. There's a hallway that's subterranean. It's It's got white tile floor, harsh fluorescent lighting, and on either side of the hall, there are video game selling stands. Mostly new stuff. Very PlayStation heavy. There are PlayStation ads all over the outside of the place. Um, but they also have some old stuff. There are a few shops that specialize in it. So I've come to Yongsan every time I've gone to Korea. It's probably about 10 or 11 times. <clears throat> and it it's changed a little bit. I mean, there used to be prostitutes behind glass, and now they only have video games behind glass. The prostitutes got moved somewhere else. I'm not sure where. Probably closer to the American base, if I had to hazard a guess. Oh, man. Someone has the most annoying sound in the world going on on their phone right now. I hope you can't hear that. Anyway. So Yongsan has just been getting dirtier and more cluttered in the video game retro video game hall area it's uh, <clears throat> not very well kept up they just get more product and they pile it on top sometimes when they need to just get rid of stuff they give it away last time I was there I got a whole bunch of Korean PC games boxed PC games for free because the guy is just like yeah I don't need this stuff take it but this time was different. Three weeks before I went, so I guess about a month ago, there was a TV special about retro games on Korean TV. And they went to Yongsan, and they filmed stuff. They talked to the people there. They talked to um, this guy, Joe, who I mentioned, who is the, the head of the retro game community. He's, he's formed a community kind of in the last year and made an, an official thing. Uh, so they talked to all these people, and now suddenly the area is popular, and people are going there looking for Game Boy games primarily. 
And because they knew that this TV special was going to happen, they cleaned everything up down there. Um, whereas there used to be stacks of things and piles of things and heaps of things. Now, there were only stacks, and all the best stuff was put in the glass cases for people to see. And a lot of that best stuff is Korean-only video games, Korean-only console games, which is a pretty cool thing. Usually you won't find it. For example, I believe I've told this story on the show before, but the first time I went to Korea, I saw this game called Manic Game Girl for the PlayStation 1, and it was $80. And I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. 80 bucks for a PS1 game that I've never even heard of. Who the heck cares? And then later, when I got home, I looked it up and found that it was the only Korean-developed, Korea-specific PlayStation 1 game. <clears throat> and that I had missed out on a chance to buy it. And I had looked for it every year since then. And it took me seven years to finally find it again. And I found it in the shop of that guy, Joe, for 60 bucks. 20 less than I had originally hoped to pay for it. And, by the way, the only people selling it in the U.S. are trying to sell it for like $300, because it's pr almost certainly one of the most rare PlayStation 1 games that exists. So Korean games were on display this time, and that was kind of exciting. <clears throat> um, so I'm going to talk next about what I bought. So yeah, uh, yeah, little buddy, I wanted to tell you, uh, I took video ball to Korea, and uh, they really liked it. Uh, there was a really strange high caliber of play, just kind of very quick, just right off the bat. Uh, I'm going to buy a hairbrush. It says Velvet Touch. I had this crappy hairbrush through this whole trip, just three weeks over there. Like a, like a good, soft kind of hairbrush. So yeah, just, they were really, really good at the game. I mean, they were kind of yelling words while playing it. Yelling shoot a lot, which was interesting. Uh, I mean, they were doing things that, uh, I, I didn't even, you know, I speak a tiny bit of Korean, but I was seeing, uh, yeah, they were kind of like setting up coverage, like, uh, like, uh, sending out a level three shot, like to slam it, baiting a reversal, just like baiting a reversal, and then the other player just seamlessly coordinating with somebody they didn't even know. Yeah, just like setting up coverage, setting up like a couple of shots, kind of leading, leading on the reversal. And uh, I liked that. That was neat. I mean, we, we do that ourselves at home and whatnot, but it was cool to see people doing that for real. And uh, then in England, someone was like, so do you see people play differently in different countries? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know whether it's we've we've refined the visuals of the game to a point that's uh, 
good, like, like so refined and like, so that stuff is feeding back better, uh, uh, like, so that, that like everything's just feeds back and everything does something, everything moves. Like, I mean, everything just kind of moves and wobbles and jiggles and all that in the game. And, uh, I don't know if those jiggles and wobbles are like at such a, such a fever pitch that it's just communicating it better. And I'm just giving the American players a, not quite as fair a, fair a shake on it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in England and Korea, they were just right off the bat, they were real good. Uh, there was this guy who, uh, came up to Birmingham from London to play it, and, uh, this guy named Adam, this guy I know from the internet, uh, he was the first player in the world to kill a, a big purple in Ziggurat. He was the first big purple killer. Uh, big purple is an enemy that shows up in the deep post-game in Ziggurat. We call it the post-game, but it's not really the post-game. In case you're unfamiliar, Ziggurat is an endless quote-unquote endless shooting game that's actually got a story uh it has more narrative than anyone will ever see because you if you get hit once you die and uh but yeah there's an enemy called big purple that shows up and uh requires a whole bunch of hits to kill and uh this guy adam was the first guy to kill him and uh you know multiple big purples show up uh later in that part of the game but killing that first one is a huge milestone this guy adam killed the first one and i got to meet him in real life in england and he was just a normal guy which is cool you'd think almost you know i mean you'd want to think that the person to kill big purple like the first guy to kill him would be like a bodybuilder or like an olympic athlete or you know, like, really big and really scary, or at the very least, just completely psychotic, strange and weird. But, uh, yeah, he'd seen a couple of videos of Video Ball on the internet and uh, a couple of streams, a couple of them, and he came up to Birmingham to play the game. And, I mean, he just, he just wasted it. He got right in and uh, just tore the game wide open just jaws of life that I mean he was really really good right away and that was uh, extremely cool to see just because there's somebody you know if you're good enough to kill a big purple and ziggurat you're good enough to I mean you're quite intimately familiar with uh, video ball has uh, charges you hold the button to charge and when you get to the third charge you have a very short window to let go and uh, it's the exact length of the window ziggurat where you have to let go for the big shot before it curves back down to a smaller shot so if you've killed big purple you are intimately familiar with the length of that window so it interests me quite a bit that someone like that was able to just take that skill and put it right on top of video ball and i mean he was getting it right away and then it wasn't just about the, the slams it was uh just the spatial awareness and all of that and, uh, I mean, it's a stereotype, but people in England watch a lot of soccer, football, as it were. Uh, and they're just very familiar with just the position and geometry and, uh, networking. And in soccer, you're, you're 
building networks and uh, playing with position. Just uh, it's more of a go than a checkers, you know. So you're setting up these networks, and uh, I was seeing players just seamlessly do networks, not just with one player and their partner, but uh, really kind of going in and treating the the triangles, the, the players' projectiles. They're not they're not projectiles. They're not bullets. They're they're other players, and uh, I, I feel like showing the game in America. Players want to think of those triangles as bullets, you know. Like they don't just want to think; they just they do. They a hundred percent think of them as bullets, not as uh, not as units like RTS units. So, uh, I mean, there are RTS units to uh, players in Korea is what it felt like with the way they were setting up coverage. But uh, I mean, players in England were moving up, like just moving on lines and uh, hitting the like turning to a side and then shooting a couple of triangles. I mean, I don't even want to say shooting them, like projecting a couple of triangles. I've been using the word project because you're like extending your influence as a, as a player on the field. So just uh, projecting several triangles just to uh, cover their own slams or to cover the possibility of another slam happening. And, uh, thinking where they're going to be and where their opponent's going to be and where a ball is going to be and uh just doing kind of an expert job of tracking one ball at a time whereas uh uh in in korea what i saw a lot of was just this hyper awareness of where all three balls were and uh some of the best players that played in korea were uh doing things that were making me really proud. They were they were passing the ball laterally. Well, it's not really lateral. Uh, so video ball doesn't have a, a backfield violation because it's not a real sport. So you can, you, I mean, it's I mean, it's not a physical sport. It's a real sport. But uh, passing the ball back the field, like the ball is close to the opponent's goal, but the opponent is covering it. So slamming the ball back toward one's own goal so that a player in one's own zone can then reverse it back at a more advantageous angle. So doing something to really trick the defender. So like instead of firing the ball in the direction that is expected, firing it the opposite way so that it can be reversed. I was seeing a lot of that in Korea. And so that really interested me a lot. And they were doing this when it wasn't like super disadvantageous to move one ball. Uh, so yeah, lots of, whereas in uh, England, they were doing a lot of clever ball choice and zone choice, like mixing up what zone they were looking at. And, uh, I mean, that kind of interests me a lot. I'm in the video game section of this target. There's a Hody Xbox One racing wheel for $26.98. Why is it that cheap? That's really cheap. I was going to get that Forza. Maybe I should buy that. I'm going to let you go for a minute while I look that up on Amazon, see if it's actually worth anything. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know in a minute. Back to this guy, Joe. He speaks English, Japanese, and Korean. His English is quite good. He's always hungover. He's got a mushroom haircut and glasses. 
He's really overactive. He's always checking his phone. And he seems really dismissive. Several of my friends in Korea have said they think that he's mean or a jerk. He's definitely not, though. He's just a certain kind of a guy. He always gives me free stuff. He's always giving me discounts. It's just you gotta, you gotta deal with him on the right level, and then he will be he will be your friend. So I hit up Joe's shop first because he's got the best stuff generally. And between June and September, as I mentioned, he had started this retro game society, of which June was a part. You have to be a member. Oh, well, I'm going to hold on for you for a moment. This is way too loud. So, Joe had created a retro game society. Not a secret society, but maybe a slightly hidden one. That is just forum, I think, and email newsletter that is talking about video games, old video games, from Japan and Korea. So between June and September, he had created this and also made his shop members only. This was kind of interesting. Um, June told me this, but I wasn't sure what form that was going to take. And then when we when we got to the actual shop, it was kind of closed off. And so I, f- I found Joe and I was like, hey, uh, can I go look at your Saturn stuff and PC Engine stuff back there? And he's like, ah, sorry, it's members only. And I looked at him, and I'm like, dude, do you have any idea how much money I have spent at your store over the years? And he looks me up and down, and he's like, oh, right. Okay, man, go ahead. I probably, in total, spent about, I mean, this doesn't sound like that much, but it's a lot to me, probably about 500 bucks there in the last four years. So, you know, I think I, I think I... M do the entry, the feeless entry. Anyway, so I went in there, I got some stuff, uh, he cut me some cool deals, he replaced the Police Knots booklet that I bought that had all the stickers removed from it for free, it was very nice, and after that, I went back to, well, I was kind of about to leave, and then I saw that in in the stand where the guy who I uh, sold the records to, he had this huge p- pile of Saturn games. And, you know, I can't read Korean. So June pointed out to me that there was a sign on top of them that said, everything 5,000 won. That's four bucks each. So I went through these, like, eight stacks of 30 or so video games and picked out a whole bunch of stuff. There were games like Assault Suit Lanos 2. Generally goes for around 25 to 30 bucks. Uh, There were several copies of Albert Odyssey. Usually goes for around 20. Um, I managed to get Ninpen Manmaru, which is a Sonic Jam, like the 3D part style Saturn platformer starring a penguin. Usually goes for about 45 got all of those for four dollars it was real nice i kept feeling like there's gonna be some catch there's no way they're gonna actually give me this stuff for four bucks but they sure did 
sure did. And I also bought zero divide one and two because we had just been we by we I mean people of the internet had been discussing the soundtrack of Zero Divide 2 and how excellent it is. So I, th- I thought, why the heck not pick them up, since they're right in front of me. Um, anyway, I bought all those games, and in so doing, I noticed that in the case next to it, there were some TurboGrafx-looking labels. And I was like, holy crap, I think this is the V-Star. Hello? Oh, hey, little buddy, how you doing? Uh, I'm not in Austin. I was, uh, gonna go to Austin, Texas today. And I didn't go. Uh, the publisher was saying, Iron Galaxy was talking about sending me to Austin because... Fantastic Fest in Austin has a yearly fantastic arcade where they have video games. Video games. And they were doing a midnight tournament and Video Ball was one of the games in the tournament. And uh, Adam Saltzman set it up there. He asked me if he could set it up at Stuff. And I just, I gave him builds of it. I said, told him to do with it as he will. Uh, figure he's as good an ambassador as any one of the only other guys with video ball is uh well there's two kids in seattle farm boys they got it we call them the farm boys they almost beat us at pax did i tell you that me and brent porter uh we challenged them uh uh if they beat us we said we'd give them a hundred dollars and uh they almost beat me and Vito last year by almost beat i mean they got four points Put your hands on your handlebars. This is a guy just with his hands off his handlebars, wearing black clothes, biking down the street, no helmet on, texting. I'm just, come on, man. Uh, they almost, they got four points on me and Vito one game last year. And, uh, so I'm glad I said best two out of three this year because they beat us the second game of the series. Which was amazing. Ten to nine, they beat us. But some guy came up and handed me, like, grabbed me in the middle, like, right at the end and said, Dave Lang wants to talk to you. And I was like, what? I can talk to him in a minute. What do you... It was nothing urgent. But guy, uh, serious business. Everybody gets a little paranoid, discombobulated and whatnot. Uh, so I, uh, uh, you know... Adam Saltzman's got the game, uh, and I'm just, uh, I told him he can do whatever he wants with it, and he doesn't even need to ask me if he wants to show it at anything, and he just said he wanted to show it at Fantastic Arcade, and, uh, they were gonna do this tournament in the Alamo Draft House in Austin, just 130 people, standing room only, uh, he just filled the capacity, some people standing in the aisles watching this tournament, and I was gonna go, and Iron Galaxy said they were gonna send me, and then... I got back at 6 p.m., and uh, I just, I was so tired. I, I was just mortally tired. Hadn't slept, and hadn't slept the night before the flight, and then ended up not sleeping on the flight, adding up to about 36 hours I hadn't slept. And uh, 
I was supposed to have about 12 hours at home and they hadn't bought me an airplane ticket and then in the morning I, I checked and they were like we're gonna buy you a ticket and I just said you know what don't I'm too tired I didn't say that though I said I had too much work to do which was a little bit more true than how tired I was and uh, so I ended up not in Austin and uh, get on Twitch TV and uh, I'm just watching people play the game and they're just scrubs and they're just not slamming it and I just felt so paranoid and terrible and Adam Saltzman's commentating and he's like you know, oh, this guy's doing real good. But Adam Saltzman was uh, drinking a little bit of alcohol and uh, getting funny. He was berating people uh, not nearly as much as I would have, but just enough probably for a mainstream audience. Jen Frank is there saying, oh, wow, every five seconds. Adam Saltzman saying, oh, wow, every three seconds. The, but eventually, like three games in, suddenly there was a team who know how, knew how to slam the ball. Maybe somebody on that team had seen a slam before, and stuff starts changing, you know? And uh, they were using an old build, a PlayStation 4 build, because at the last minute, Sony said, let's show everything on PS4s. I really wanted them to use the, PS, the, the PC build I'd sent, because we, we did a thing. We changed the slam acceleration. When you slam the ball, the ball accelerates much more slowly than it did before. It was to stop a glitch wherein sometimes balls jumped out of the wall. And uh, it had been on our to-do list, or Toto list, as one might say, for months. And, uh, and we did it before PAX, and it just makes these premeditated slam reversal baitings uh, go a lot more smoothly. Like, way more smoothly uh, than, you'd, than you'd think they could possibly be. And, uh, that's really appealing to me. I mean, the slams, uh, you know, it used to just be the ball would jump really fast. And, uh, now it, now it doesn't. And so they were using an older build, which had more levels than I wanted them to use in the tournament. So the whole time I'm just kind of kicking myself that I didn't go there. Not that I would have been able to change the build or convince them to use a PC version of Convince Sony to, uh, convince Sony to not want to show it on PS4. But, uh, I also just wanted to be there. I just wanted to see it. I wanted to see Video Ball on a movie theater screen, a big, beautiful screen. I'm just watching it and I'm, you know, I'm realizing the whole time that, uh, you know, we did make this game for people to play, not for me to stand by and talk about just the caliber of the play was so low until suddenly somebody stepped in with some knowledge and then everyone else learned a little tiny bit by example and uh, the finals were pretty alright, the last couple of games were pretty tight, pretty tough so I go over to the guy the guy who I sold the records to and who I just bought a bunch of Saturn games from. And, by the way, he had just given me 25,000 won, and I was spending 75,000 won. So, in a way, it's like those those games were even less than four bucks each, because I got a third of the price knocked off due to record sales. But I go over to him, and I'm like, hey, man, uh, you got some V-Star games over there in your case. 
I had never seen them before because they had been hidden, I guess. This whole TV show thing had had gotten them to bring out their best stuff, so now now the V-Star was visible. So he's like, uh, yeah, but I can't take it out of the box. And I'm like, I don't need to just see the console. I want to see the games. And he's like, uh, well, hmm. And so I get June to translate for me and, and indicate that I love the TurboGrafx. I love the PC Engine. I really want to see the Korean version of the PC Engine's games, if at all possible. I've never seen them in my life, and I want to see them. So he begrudgingly walks over. He was in a different part of the store. We go over there. He starts taking them out for me. So they're really interesting. They used the U.S. box art with Korean uh, titles on them. Really cool fonts on those Korean titles. And the V-Star, the mascot, was Air Zonk. He's in all the commercials. He's on the box. Uh, he's kind of their seal of approval guy. And uh, in addition, they have like this this kind of 16-bit mark that they put on every cartridge. So I just saw Johnny Turbo, the actual Johnny Turbo, at the Tokyo Game Show. I was talking to him about old TurboGrafx stuff, and I showed him the images of these V-Star games, and he said, oh yeah, I remember that deal. This happened right, right, it was like the last licensing deal that we did from from the U.S. side, and so it was actually a U.S. TurboGrafx with different housing, and the games were all U.S. TurboGrafx games, so that explains why they used that cover art and all of that, because they, um, the deal came from the U.S. side, not the Japan side. <clears throat> anyway, I'm looking through these games, and the guy still doesn't quite get what I, exactly I'm so excited about, but then we get to Bloody Wolf. <clears throat> and I happen to be wearing a Bloody Wolf shirt that day. So I point at the Bloody Wolf game, and I'm like, look at this, and he looks at it. I was like, all right, now look at this, and I point at myself, and he goes, ah, and he slaps the table. He's like, all right, man. <laughs> he points at me, and uh, I guess he, he, he knew what I was about after that. So he started showing me some other stuff, showed me where I could find the box of the VSAR, but he wasn't going to take it out because it was all packed up to the ceiling. But it was really cool. Like, I had, I have been looking for these for years, and I finally found them. And my friend June, who had just heard about them this morning, or that morning, he actually got to see them. And just when, you know, when I said, I've been looking for these for years, and this is the, my first time seeing them, he was... He was saying, you know, I can't believe I've never heard of this. We're so bad at presenting our history and and showing, you know, who we are and what we've done and where we've been. He said he got goosebumps because there was this thing he'd never heard of from Korea uh, that was part of the history of game culture there.
and then he just got to see it a few hours later. It was a pretty cool experience. So I finally got to see the V-Star. I couldn't buy it, of course. He said it's not for sale at any price. And I asked him, you know, how did you get these? I've been looking everywhere and I haven't been able to find them. And he's like, oh, I bought them in the 90s and then I kept them. I was like, oh man, that's cool. I'm in my house, I got soup cooking. Uh, like, uh, locking the door, because my neighbor's insane and I'm starting to think he's going to kill me. So I'm watching people play this game and uh, they're getting better at it. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and it's just like in a moment of weird confidence, I'm just like, this game's really good. I mean, I've said that before and I've thought it before, but never so much in a, you know, it's going to be all right kind of way as a, watching those people play in Austin. And I'm just thinking of how good they were at it in England and Korea, and I'm just not super-duper afraid of, I mean, people picking it up anymore. I mean, it's... It's, uh... I mean, it's real, man. It's really real. It's got so much skill and so many layers in it. I'm just thinking, you know, so I couldn't be at this one tournament. It's in the Alamo Draft House, coolest movie theater in America. It makes me feel sad I wasn't there. But, uh, I can be somewhere else. Now, there were these guys in England saying they wanted to set up a LAN party in their college. And there was a guy saying he wanted to take it to his local pub where they watch rugby. There was another guy saying he wanted to set it up at a bar where they watch esports. There was some esports bar in London where they watched Dota 2, uh, like, uh, saying he wanted to, saying they wanted to set it up there and have a night. I'm just thinking, I've got all these reasons I could go back to England. Some good players there. Met this guy named, named Ben Wilson. He was real good. This other guy, Adam, I think I mentioned him earlier when I was at Target the other day. Uh, yeah, Adam, uh, what was this? At Target, I, I left that on a cliffhanger, didn't I? There was this hoodie, uh, steering wheel that was on sale for $26. Turned out it was a piece of crap. It was just some old, it was like the low end one. I thought maybe it was like a good one and I'd stumbled on a deal, but smartphone helped me out. See, I guess people, maybe I would have uh, had a tendency to collect more stuff back before the smartphones. Now I can point my god darn phone camera at a thing and press a, don't even have to press a button. It just looks at it and knows what it is. It's God darn end of days, you know? Something like that. It's wizardry in your pocket. And your sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, etc. But I'm thinking, yeah, it's, there's, I can just give video ball to some people and they can play it and they can be ready. And then, you know, if it can just get out there, maybe what I'm saying is, 
maybe game events, you know, maybe, maybe gaming conventions and events. Maybe that's not it. Maybe that's not the place to show the game. I mean, it's a place to show the game, but I mean, I didn't, we didn't make this game so that it's just, uh, to, to show at gaming events. I mean, it's, it's a real thing. It's a, it's like you're buying a digital sporting good. It's like a pool table. And I'm just surrounded with all these people. And uh, at the Eurogamer Expo, it felt like the game was sort of home. And again, I don't know if it's because of the English people's tendency to understand all the intricacies of football and geometry and all of that. Or if it's that it was just the right crowd or that it was British gamers or... Uh, whatever it was, or if it's that the game is just done enough to a point, or if it's that I had a build that was restricted to just be the basic mode, or if that it was I had a build where the slammed balls accelerate at just the right speed. Now the final speed, all the fundamental changes are finished. All of the fundamentals of the game are finally in place. I don't know what it was, some sort of perfect storm of conditions possibly. It just felt like the game was at home, you know what I mean? Just like it was uh, it was finally going back into its bed and sitting down and taking its socks off. Uh, it really felt... And by at home, I mean, I didn't even have to explain it to anybody. Aside from the occasional lean over and whisper in somebody's ear, uh, hold the button down to charge a shot. Uh... It's almost like just push it a little bit harder, get it into the vernacular, you know, the whole hold a button to charge a shot. It's the one thing people don't get. Hold the button to get the slam, let go at the right time. Learn all the rest. Just, I mean, it was, it was there. And I'm looking at the fantastic arcade thing and, uh, just watching, I got that stream. It's on an archive. Uh, and they just, uh, I mean, I wasn't there, but I mean, the game was, and I, mean, I guess that's me. I guess that's part of me. And uh, maybe I don't have to be everywhere the game is anymore. You know, I mean, it's going to happen sooner or later, but I mean, the idea of a one-button game, it's accessible so anybody can play it. I mean... I don't need to go demo it in person. Uh, it's like we got rejected for Indiecade while I was traveling. I looking at my phone, you know, waiting for some updates about a particular thing, and uh, you know, there's a email from Indiecade, and it's like Indiecade jury results, and I'm like, we probably got rejected, and it turns out we did. And the rejection was just worded so, so coldly. It was, there were four judges. One of them said they played the game with four friends and absolutely loved it. And I said in my description that, uh, they should play it four players. I mean, I strongly suggested they play it four players. I said, don't play it alone. And, uh, one person said they played it four players, loved it, and were recommending it for the showcase. The other three gave it these bizarre reviews. One of them said it was too hard to tell which player you were. 
which is, you know, you're the one that moves one-to-one with your pressing of the button. Um, One of them said that the game is too confusing and that it would do better to be geared more toward the first user experience, first-time user experience, FTUE. And the other one said that uh, I should try playtesting the game with people who have never played it because making a game, you're making something for other people, not just for yourself. And uh, part of developing a game is testing it with a wide variety of people and seeing how first-time players engage with it or interact with it or whatever. And it's like, I've watched thousands of people play this game, man. You know? Just thousands of them. So, I guess I just kind of felt a little bit sad seeing that. Just, you know, I'm in England and I'm waiting for a train or whatever, skeeving off some Wi-Fi, and then there's that. And, uh, saw that I just it felt bad and weird but then I'm not in Austin and I'm watching these people play it and sort of get it and a lot of mixed things you know it's just watching people play it knowing I could have been there I still would have wanted to be there in Austin because I didn't know it was on my list but be a VIP at a film festival is actually on my list of things I want to do and I really missed the boat on that one because I was tired. But, uh, what I had a Waffle House, two waffles, triple hash browns, cheese, and jalapenos, anywhere between three and six cups of coffee, I would have had. Know a lot of people in Austin, Texas could have had a good time. I mean, there's that, and there's also. I mean, maybe I do want to represent this game, but maybe this game can represent itself. It's. You know how it is. You know you know what I'm talking about. And I mean, that's really it. And, uh, sat down and I played some more Dragon Quest VII. Uh, and, uh, fought some monster in a tower and brought the island back in the present day. And uh, the people are freaking out back in the present day at this island that's appeared off the coast. And they're talking about going over there and talking to it. And I just remember, you know, the first time I played that, this story, right at the very beginning, you know, just minutes in, someone says, look at this map. It's got all these islands on it. That's weird. Who drew all these? There's only one island in this world. Just right at the beginning, I saw that, and I thought, wow, I really want to see the end of that story. I think I've already said that on these recordings. I mean, actually, I know I did. Uh, And uh, it's just, you know, what a hook, that thing. Just what a really solid hook. I love it. And, uh, yeah, someone was telling me recently... Uh, uh, I, you know, something about memory, about having a really good memory, just feeling like your head is kind of trapped 
in a rotation, you know, like the thing you remember, like you might remember something and you remember the, the, uh, you, you remember the spatial quality of it so much that, uh, but so specifically with such specificity that you can't rotate your head and see other things in the room. You're only seeing what you saw then. And, uh, trying to think, I, just looking at all the factors of my trip, I went to Seoul, where I stayed in a hotel two nights, then I rode a bus to Busan, and, uh, on that bus for five hours, just surrounded by Korean people speaking Korean, Korean game developers, I just knew where to get the bus, nobody there speaking English to me. And uh, I get out of that bus you know, at a rest stop just on the side of the highway. And uh, I get a bag of Cheetos and a Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew in a really electric green bottle in Korea. And I go, and I just look out at this massive, tall stone tower monument in the middle of this rest stop. And I get back on the bus. Nobody's speaking English again. And I go all the way down to just gets to Busan and we get out of the hotel and they just start ushering everybody to an elevator and they get up to the lobby and there they are just five people that I hung out with in Kyoto a couple months earlier and we're all just they're just like oh there you are and uh then I get to uh uh England two weeks later and there the same people are only only now it's, uh, they all went home after Korea, and I didn't. And, uh, I, I went to Japan, and I had meetings, and then I went to England, and, uh, I stayed in Heathrow, at a hotel by Heathrow Airport two nights, and then took a bus to Birmingham Airport the next day. two and a half hour bus ride, and check into a hotel just out next to the runway, literally with a view of the runway in my room, the Auguste Picard suite at the Holiday Inn Birmingham Airport. I take a shuttle bus to the National Exhibition Center, and I walk through this just cavern, this Star Wars Death Star-sized enormous exhibition center. I've never seen anything like it. And I get all the way to where the Indy Mega Booth is, and there's all those people that I saw again like a few weeks ago, and they'd all been home, and I hadn't. And, uh, you just kind of think back and I'm in that hotel, September 11th, 2015. I had a girlfriend on September 11th. Uh, we broke up September 10th, 2001. I guess you could call it breaking up. And, uh, like she was from Busan, South Korea. And, uh. She bought me Dragon Quest Seven and sent it to me in a care package that also had Metal Gear Solid 2. And I played Dragon Quest Seven first. Played a little bit of it. And then I played all of Metal Gear Solid 2 in that little tiny empty room sitting on the floor before I got right back into Dragon Quest Seven. And, uh, I played a PS1 game on my PS2, my American PS2 in Japan. And uh, 
that was weird. And uh, I feel like I was, you know, looking back even then. And uh, her birthday is September 11th. September 11th, 1980. And uh, so I'm sitting there in the city of her birth on her birthday. And is that why I bought Dragon Quest Seven? Thinking back, I knew the itinerary. I knew I was going to be in Busan, South Korea on September 11th. And I just knew that I was going to have a 12-hour flight to Copenhagen from Tokyo, and I wanted to buy a new Nintendo 3DS. Did I know I was going to play Dragon Quest Seven on that airplane? I mean, did I know I was going to play Dragon Quest Seven on the airplane back from Dublin to San Francisco? Did I decide on it because I knew I was going to be in Busan, South Korea? You know... There's all that, man. It's all of that, man. And uh, I feel like uh, getting old, you know what I mean? By getting old is just a kind of a biological process that has some, some sort of a direct correlation to how many coincidences you're experiencing per second. And, uh, it's just getting to be a lot, you know, the coincidence density. And, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure either, if you know what I mean. I think I'm going to just let this one go. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm just going to let that one go. I mean, amen, little buddy. God loves football. You know? Just, uh... Just thinking about, like, old people in supermarkets whose personalities are identical, like an old couple. You know? Like, two old people who just act exactly the same. And I just think, yeah, aging is the process by which... Our psychologies become just jungles of coincidence. And I think that's, I don't know, man. I'm really tired. So, can't think of a way to end that. It says I have 10% battery remaining. Huh. I'm just gonna go. Yeah. There's a tunnel that connects the Yongsan Station and the Yongsan Retro Game Market. It's been there for the last five years at the very least. Maybe longer. It's a really cool little corridor that um, they have kind of monuments, plaques to electronics from the past they've got a Walkman they've got a Game Boy they've got an MSX, they've got an Amiga Commodore 64 a Pentium chip 
all on these metal plates that are kind of um, pointing out at an angle from the wall. And then on the ground, there are etched into stone, marble, floor, the dates that these things came out, and who made them, and that sort of thing. It really, it feels like a, a kind of a piece of history, like a walking through a, a tunnel of history. And I always enjoyed going through that tunnel. But the last time I went to Yongsan, just a few days ago, two weeks maybe, <clears throat> between the time when June went with me and my last time in Yongsan, let's say there were three days between those two events, I went back to buy some more Saturn games just to make sure that I had gotten every, absolutely everything that I wanted to since it was four bucks each and couldn't resist. But in that time, they had chiseled out every single one of those plaques and were in process, in the process, as I was walking through the tunnel of holding it up. Well, not holding it up, but putting these weird plastic tiles on the side. I could see the places where they had chiseled out the plaques, probably to be put into landfill somewhere. And they weren't even redoing the tile. They were just putting these plastic lattices over the sides and then putting plastic tiles on top of those. And they had installed new fluorescent lighting already. Essentially, they were shrinking the interior of the tunnel by about three inches on all sides. <clears throat> and it... It's an interesting thing. It just... It felt like the end of an era for me. <clears throat> that tunnel has been there forever and has been a testament to technology and electronics in that area. And how should I say? With the cleaning up of the Yongsan underground market and the announcement of a brand new building that was already in pro progress, which replaced this really cool old um, kind of tube-like elevated tunnel, and the redux of this tunnel. It felt like the, the Yongsan of old was going away, and, you know, Jun talks about how Korea doesn't do a great job of preserving its history. Neither do we in the U.S., really. But Korea seems to want to forget the time when it was poor and scrappy, now that they're really successful on the world stage. And they're covering over everything that might embarrass them a little bit. And I thought that Yongsan was immune. I don't know why I thought that. But it's happening now. It strikes me that if I had, if I had gone back one day earlier... I might have been able to take one of those plaques home with me and at least preserve just a little bit of Yongsan somewhere. <laughs>